grab your Bible, grab your Bible app, open it to Genesis chapter 6 this morning. Uh, last week we began and ended chapter 5. We won't be doing that in chapter 6. Uh, but you might remember last week we ended with this uh, announcement of Noah's three sons, right? Uh, and so you kind of expect, well, chapter 6 is going to pick up with those three sons and move forward. It's not what happens, as you'll see here in a moment. In fact, we're not going to get back to their story until halfway through chapter 9 of Genesis, so it'll be a little while. Uh, today's passage is going to explain the world at the time of, of Noah. And most of you know this, but it's not, it's not real great. It's not real good situations at the time. Uh, and so again, right, uh, get Genesis 6 before your eyes because you're going to want to be able to look at it today. You want to be able to see it with your own eyes because this is one of those passages that is, is it's complicated, right? Uh, Richard Phillips says, these are the most mysterious verses in the entire book. Kent Hughes says, this is the most debated text in the book of Genesis. And as Gus says, this is messed up, right? Uh, and while this is a complicated passage here, right, the, the overarching point of this passage, regardless of the way that you're going to end up interpreting some of these things here at the, that we're going to look at in the beginning, the overarching thing at the end is incredibly simple, which is good. And, and, and what I mean by that is this, right? When, when we live in eternity and, and we get to like talk to the Lord, right? And, and hear, so what was really going on in Genesis 6? What are the details there? What was going on there, right? And, and it's all laid out for us. We, we might find out that, you know what? Like a mystery story that, that you really put the pieces together wrong and yet came to the right conclusion is, is, is the kind of thing that's going to go on here, um, right? Because mercifully... The Lord has made the point of this passage undeniably clear regardless of how you put it together. And I know I'm setting it up so much, you're like, well, what is happening here? Uh, we'll see here in a minute, right? So that should get you excited for maybe the eight strangest verses that you're going to uh, ever read. <clears throat> so there we go, right? Genesis 6. You got it before you. Follow along as I read aloud. <clears throat> when man began to multiply on the face of the land... And daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they choose, chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, <clears throat> and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the, of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we approach this strange and fascinating passage in Genesis 6, my prayer, our prayer this morning is that, that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. Through this process, we ask that, that you would form our minds, that you would transform our hearts, that you would direct our actions, that you would teach us, correct us, Shape us to be more like you. Speak to us in your word, Lord. We are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
So you've probably seen a little of them here, right? But these first four verses here <clears throat> provide us with actually three an interpretive conundrums. Uh, and we're going to consider all three of them as we get to them. And then we'll look at the big picture of the passage. And that's really where it comes to life. Um, now, on each of these interpretive debates, if you will, there are uh, godly orthodox theologians who passionately take different views, right? Uh, and along that thought, I, I tell you that so that you, you understand you can go either direction, or, or there's a third direction, actually, right, uh, that you can go, and, and, and they can't both be right, right? They, they're not all right, but, but they are all within orthodoxy, meaning you haven't gone to some heresy about God because you take one of these views over the other one. Uh, so let's, let's get into it. Our, our first conundrum here is to simply identify in verse 2, uh, who are the sons of God, as well as who are the daughters of God? of man, right? And, and, and I'm going to give you two options here, right? There is a third one. There's the Green Party that's not going to get elected, but, but is a viable option. And, and I just don't deal with that today, but it is another one in case you know anything about it. So uh, let me just start with a short summation of each view here, right? The, the first view is this, what's, what we'll call the Sethite view. In this, in this interpretation, the sons of God refers to men in the godly line of Seth, right? In that lineage, who think the, the, the women in the ungodly line of Cain are incredibly beautiful, and, and they take them to be their wives. Therefore, mixing the line of Seth and the line of Cain, right, the good line and the bad line, uh, and that's in it. In this view, then, the Nephilim, in verse 4, are, are just marking a, a, time, uh, a time period, and I'll explain that in more detail later. So that's the one view, the Sethite view. The other view is, is what we'll call the angel view. It says that the sons of God are angels, or since they go rogue here, I guess we have to call them demons, right? Now, in, in this view, the, the maleish angels are like, these human girls are really hot, right? And so they introduce themselves to these human girls. Uh, maybe they, they modify that old uh, line, right, saying, uh, you know, ask me if it hurt, right? And when she says, did what hurt? They smoothly responded, well, when, when I fell from heaven, right? Uh, something like that. It's got to come from somewhere. Now, now, probably not like that at all, but but under this view, right, the mysterious Nephilim in verse 4 are thought then to be the children of, of, the, angel, uh, of the angel fathers and the human mothers. And that's, that's this new kind of mixed thing, kind of like Percy Jackson, but with, with angels, right? Uh, and we'll come back to the Nephilim later there. So, so why might I be convinced uh, of the angel view? And I'll, I'll put it that way personally here for a minute, right? Because on, on one hand, my, my mentor, Tony Felich in Kansas City, he is convinced it's angels, right? And so you kind of tend to want to go with your mentor on these kind of things. And, um, but he's also a diehard Yankee fan, right? So there is definitely going to be some credibility issues there. So we'll just disregard that one. Um, but, but Kent Hughes, right, who's not a Yankee fan, also holds this view. And, and the angel view is, here is the oldest known interpretation, and that goes a long way, right? This is the way that a lot of old, you know, Jewish rabbis, Jewish teachers would have, would have understood it this way, but, but some of the most respected Jewish teachers also didn't recognize Jesus, the Messiah, when, when he was among them. So, you know, what do you do with that? Now, now the ancient but non-biblical book of Enoch explains this story as angels and humans, and, and it's kind of, that's, that's again, right, would have been an old interpretation. Now, in, in the scriptures, Unlike in pop culture today, right, but in the scriptures, angels are always referred to as males, as he, right, with masculine names, and, uh, and so you've got that going in, in favor of this. But the most convincing of, of evidence is from other passages in scripture, right, uh, because we see this phrase in other places, right, the sons of God. In, in Job 1.6, you remember Job 1.6? Um, I'll just read it to you. It says, 
Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came among them. And the idea there is these are angels that have come present themselves to the Lord, and, and Satan's with them. So, you know, that's, that's not descendants of Seth then, right? It's, it's about angels. Psalm 29.1, Psalm 89.7 also use this phrase, the sons of God, in a way that is clearly speaking about angels. And then when we get to the New Testament, in Jude 6, right, there's this statement that sounds like it refers <clears throat> to the events in our passage. Listen to this. It says, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. God has kept an eternal change under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. And so you can picture and think, okay, so that's what they did, and this is what ended up happening, right? Or, or 1 Peter 3.19, where we read, Christ went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Does spirits here actually, is that a reference to angels? And then listen to 2 Peter 2.4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, and it goes on, right? So you kind of begin to see this. Uh, Hebrews 13.2, right? We're encouraged to be hospitable to strangers. And you remember why we're supposed to be hospitable to these strangers, right? Because you might be entertaining angels, or sorry, humans, strangers, that you are actually angels. In other words, you see someone that looks like a human, and they actually are an angel, is what it's saying. So is marrying and having children with someone the sort of hospitality in mind here? Um, <clears throat> the well-respected Old Testament scholar, Gordon Winham, uh, adds all to, the, to all this evidence, this heavy-handed insistence that we actually affirm the angel view when he says this, and he says it quite beautifully, actually. He says, if the modern reader finds this story incredible, that reflects a materialism that tends to doubt the existence of spirits, good or bad. But those who believe that the Creator could unite himself to a human nature in the virgin's womb will not find this story intrinsically beyond belief. Well, I'll tell you, right, you're, you're open to taking either view here, but I, for one, believe that the Creator did, in fact, unite Himself to a human nature in the virgin womb and the, the person of Jesus, and yet I'm not convinced this is a story about angels procreating with humans, right? So how is that? Well, <clears throat> the, second, or the Jude passage, the Second Peter passages, they aren't necessarily about uh, Genesis 6. They certainly, if you assume that, they, they look like they fit there. They could actually be referring to a, an angelic rebellion that happened long before Adam and Eve were hanging out naked in the garden to begin with, right? Uh, further, Jesus and our Lord in Matthew 22, and this one's pretty significant, was asked, right, if, if a woman is married and her husband dies and she remarries one of his brothers, right, and then he dies, and it goes on these seven times, and, and this question at the end is, well, well, whose wife is she in eternity in heaven? Whose wife will she be after the resurrection? And in verse 30, here, here's what Jesus, he says, in the resurrection, people neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven, right? Like them how? That they don't marry and aren't given in marriage, right? And, and, and so while the angels can take human form, while an angel could share a, a, a meal with a human, right, that's a far cry from, from the years it would take to pursue someone romantically, to get married to them, to have children with them, to raise those children. That's a very different thing. Plus, this is part of me that's just thinking, wait a second, so, so like dogs and cats can't have a kid together and you get like a dog cat or anything, right? Um, that's not where chihuahuas come from. And, and so I have this question then, how is it then that, that a spiritual being that is made uh, not in the image of God is able to reproduce with mankind who is made in the image of God? F furthermore, if demons were able to do it then, what provides 
prevents them from, from continuing to marry and have children with human women today. Right? How does Laura not know that I'm just a demon pretending to be this incredibly handsome guy up here, right? Maybe that would actually explain why Beckham's so tall and no one else in our family is. <laughs> He's a Nephilim, right? This explains it. Or, you know, Shaquille O'Neal or The Rock. Maybe they're Nephilim too. You see, these bizarre logical conclusions that we go to are, are one of the reasons that John Calvin, right, who's always so logical and reasonable, he says of the angelic view, and I quote, is abundantly refuted by its own absurdity, <clears throat> right? Um, but the biggest objection I think I have to the angel view is, is seeing who's punished in the Genesis passage, right? I know you can assume some of the, the Second Peter one is, is talking about that, but, but if you look at Genesis 6 here, it's, it's not angels being punished. It's all of humanity. It, it's the Sethites, it's the Cainites, it's everyone on the planet. There, there's no mention of angels in Genesis having any punishment there. And, and so while it's, it's true, sons of God usually does mean angels in, in the scripture, right? We, we do some see some exceptions. Moses also wrote in, uh, in Deuteronomy 14.1 regarding God's covenant people, you are the sons of the Lord your God. <clears throat> Furthermore, along with R.C. Sproul and, and Kevin DeYoung, I, I find the Sethite view fits the context of Genesis 4, 5, and 6 a whole lot better. And, and again, as a reminder, right, this view says that the sons of God refers to this, this, what was seen as the godly line of Seth, okay? And the daughters of man are, uh, are um, women in the wicked line of Cain. And, and if we take it there, just to what we're seeing here in, in Genesis 6, right, then, then we begin to see that the point is this, that, that, that these men who are in this godly line, the hopeful line, right, but, but, but now these, <clears throat> these Sethite men are not acting godly. Even they have degraded in, in this sense. They, they are following their, their lusts for these attractive women, even against true spiritual wisdom of, of not marrying outside of the faith. And, and even that idea fits everything we see in the Old Testament, right? Where, where God requires his people to not marry outside of the faith. And, and when we get to the New Testament, right? The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.14, and this is broad, but also applies to marriage, right? Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness <clears throat> now listen it is good that you find your spouse or your future spouse attractive right that's that's a good thing that's a gift of the lord but but the scriptures teach us men and women right to prioritize spiritual faithfulness over outward physical attraction so to quote calvin again he says marriage is a thing too sacred to allow that men should be in, uh, induced to it by the lust of the eyes and this is because marriage is this holy union between a, a you know, God-honoring, Jesus-trusting, Holy Spirit-filled man and woman who are committed to the glory of God and the service of the Lord. Uh, also, th this Sethite view explains why God is not just angry at Cain's line, but all of humanity, right? Because it's all come back together in this regard. And, and this sinful intermarriage, then, of these, these two lines explains how it is that Noah, then, is the only righteous offspring of Seth, of Seth left in these nine generations. <clears throat> it doesn't go into details, but it's easy to see, right? I mean, certainly he must not have done, done the same thing. And I, I, I want you to see one last thing before we move on here. And that's, that's how this event parallels the sin of Eve in the garden. Just because it tells you a lot about how sin works. And if you see this parallel, you're going to understand how sin works in your own life as well, right? So back in Genesis 3, 6, uh, Eve saw that the tree was good for food. We're told that it was a delight to her eyes. 
We're told that she desired it, and then we're told she chose sin. She took fruit, and she ate. Now, you see the pattern in our passage here, right? These godly men, if you take it in this view, right, of the line of Seth, they saw that the ungodly daughters of Cain were a delight to the eyes. They desired them sexually, and they chose to sin. They, they took them as wives. And, and again, like, like in the garden, the consequences are incredibly tragic. And we'll see those here in a bit. Now, now again, for what it's worth, that's the same pattern that, that we follow in most of our sin as well. You, you know, seriously, evaluate the next time you find yourself in some sin. Just go back and say, what, what led me here? What were the steps? And tell me if you don't see something incredibly similar to this, this pattern here. Now, now then, right, the, 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 the next conundrum, rather, is, is here that we're going to see is in verse 3, right? You got that first one settled, you have a view, you agree with me, you think I'm an idiot, or you're green partying, that's okay, any of them fine. Uh, <clears throat> now, to understand verse 3, right, when, when God says this, he, it really, let me just read it to you. It says, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. Uh, and, and, you know, one view is that this means people are no longer going to live to 900 years like Methuselah, or a little less than that, like Jared, right? Uh, instead, their lives are going to max out at 120-ish years, 120 years, and that seems to fit what we know. In fact, on the planet right now, we're getting close to 8 billion people, right? And the oldest person on the planet at this moment is a woman named Maria Moreira. It's probably not actually pronounced that way. Now, she is 116 years old. She lives in Spain, and she actually runs her own Twitter account at 116. That's impressive, right? Um, so that's one view, is, is that's what it's talking about. And however, we run into this problem is this, that, that, that life expectancy after the flood doesn't actually end at, at, at 120. Uh, Shem lives to be 600, Abraham 175, Isaac 180. Uh, Jacob was 147 years old. There's a few others whose names won't jump out to you, but they were over 400 years old. Uh, and, and so perhaps, and, and this is the other view here then, is that <clears throat> it's about God giving a warning about the flood that's coming. Right? There's going to be 120 years left for flesh before the flood destroys. Uh, like 1 Peter 3.20 says, right? God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Uh, that 120 years then is God's patience in, in this instance, which which honestly is a lot more than the 40 days that they got in Nineveh, right? Um, and, and we too are actually living in a time of warning right now. You, you will die, right? Or, or Jesus will return. One of those two things. And, and you have now until that, that event, right? The return of Christ to, to make peace with God through faith in Jesus. We understand that. We, we're living in that warning now. Now, and again, you can actually go either way here. Neither of these is going to take you into heresy. Um, and this brings us to our third conundrum, and it just feels like there's a lot of conundrums today, right? Um, who are the Nephilim, right? Uh, who are these mighty men of renown that we see in verse 4? And you might notice in your Bible, <clears throat> it says Nephilim. It doesn't translate it to anything here. Uh, there's probably a little note about giants we'll get to in a bit, but, but, but it's not translated. And the reason is that, that that's the Hebrew. It says Nephilim in Hebrew, and that's because there is, there is some uncertainty as to what the, what the name means. It's, it's, a, it's a word that's awfully simmer, similar to a Hebrew word that means to fall. Uh, if you like the, the angels, right, fallen angel view, you can definitely run with that. Uh, the, the only other use of this name, Nephilim, in all the scriptures is found in Numbers 13.33. Um, which, by the way, is after the flood. Uh, and so the Nephilim mentioned there can't be biologically related to the Nephilim mentioned here. Uh, there, they are depicted as these 
giant Canaanite warriors, right, who are in the promised land, uh, which is why your Bible makes a little note there that, that the Nephilim, they, they might be giants, right? And, and, and don't think 40 feet tall when you hear that. Don't think jolly dream giant or something like that. Think seven, eight, nine feet tall, big warriors that would be terrifying if you had to fight them. And, uh, and, and more importantly, for the sake of our passage today, notice verse 4 doesn't say that the Nephilim were the children of these ungodly marriages. I know our head kind of wants to assume that's what's going on here. Uh, but look, it says the Nephilim were on the earth in the days and also afterwards. And again, I might be wrong, but I believe the Nephilim are mentioned here simply as a marking of time. Kind of like in, in, in my generation, you college youngins won't even get this probably, right? The, but I say, you know, you know, back in the time of Napster, and, and you're like, I don't know what that means, but, but it means something. That's why Dunning's laughing over here. He's like, it was free music, all the free music. It was like Spotify, but you didn't pay for it. Um, <clears throat> so it, it was this great era, right? And, 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 and here's the thing, you and I, we know pretty much nothing about the Nephilim, right? Write everything down, you know about the Nephilim, and you're like, their name's Nephilim, um, right? So, but, but for the people in Moses' day, the Nephilim meant something. It is grounded in this time of history. And, and, and so if, if we see it this way, right, he's saying that the sons of God, they were getting married and, and having sex and having children with the daughters of man. And, and this was when the Nephilim, when, when they were around, right, about the same time. And now, now, now the Nephilim are, are, are here, right, to put this in thing. They're, they're not necessarily connected uh, to the ones before in verses one, 1 through 2, but they are connected to the mighty men who were... Uh, of old, the men of renown that we see there at the end of verse 40, or sorry, 4. In uh, my assumption, and yes, I, I admit, this is an assumption, right, but uh, is that they are some well-known warrior tribe. It's like saying this is the time when, when the Navy SEALs were there, or it's an army town, right, the, when the Green Berets were here, uh, right, so some kind of warrior class that, that they would understand. And, and if we understand it this way, then it actually explains why in Numbers 13, after the fall, right, can't be related in any, like, biological way, the, the Israelites refer to the Canaanite warriors as, as Nephilim. Not, not because they are biologically related, but because they are some scary dudes that we're going to have to go up against. And, and so this, then, you know, again, you can go either way with this. But this brings us to verse 5, and everything comes together. So no matter where you've gone, you're going to come back together at this point. They all lead to the same conclusion here. Praise the Lord for that. Um, and, and there's quite a, a contrast going on here in verse 5 from, from, from God's assessment way back in, in, in chapter 1. You remember God's assessment of the world, the created world then, right? After each day, and, and, and God saw that it was good. Right? And then more creation. He looks on the creation. He says, ah, and God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. Now look at verse 5. What's God's assessment? It's not good. Right? Look. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's not exactly a five-star review of the creation at this point. And it's a, a small detail here, but uh, there, there's also a contrast between um, the sons of God that we see there in verse 1, who looked outwardly on the beauty of the daughters of man, whereas God looks on the character of the nature of mankind. He looks on men's thoughts, he looks on women's hearts, and God sees, well, what he's finding is it's all, it's all rotten. And this is what we theologically refer to as total depravity. Right at this point in, in Genesis, man's depravity, right, is not 
not a temporary state. It's, it's not a weak moment. It's not some shameful regret. As, as God says here, it is everywhere on, on the earth. It is in thoughts and hearts. Humanity is intentionally evil. And look at that. Endlessly so, continually so. There's no sign of repentance at all. Now, we don't get the details of what this all means here, but, but, but based on what we do see, Richard Phillips calls this an evil cocktail of sexual debauchery and prideful violence. And it's all built upon a foundation of idolatry. That's where we're at. And so when we get to verse 6 then, you've got it open right, uh, we get to one more perplexing statement. Have a look. And it says this, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Right? He's going to say, I'm sorry I made them later. And, and we see this, right? He regretted it. And I know, we read that and you think, well, that's no big deal. That's a normal response. Listen, I don't handle dairy very well, but it was Sadie's birthday this week. I made this huge chocolate milkshake. I don't know why, but I regretted it afterwards. I, I bet you've done things. I bet you've said things to people that you regret afterwards. I mean, anyone would regret in the way that we see God feeling regret here. It's no big deal. Except, God's not just anyone. God is the Holy One. God is the absolute sovereign one, the, the perfect one. How can God regret? That's the issue. You see, God said through the prophet Samuel, 1 Samuel 15, 29, he says, and also the glory of Israel, that's God referring to himself, right? And also the glory of Israel, he will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regrets. Our Lord further affirms this later in, in Malachi 3.6 when he says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Right? Not even in that regard. But, you know, these, along with other passages, are why, you know, chapter 2 of the Westminster Confession of Faith describes God with this word immutable. You know that word, immutable? It means that God does not change, right? We just use big words sometimes. And, and the significance of this is that, you know, you and I, we want to change to become more like God, to become better, Right? Uh, and sometimes we change to become worse in ways, right? But, but if you are already perfect, like God is already perfect, you, you can't become more perfect than you're already perfect, right? And God's not going to become less perfect than already perfect, and therefore God does not change. And so why does Genesis 6.6 6 here say that God regretted, regretted having made man? And the simple answer is this, that God often describes himself uh, using, a, you know, this is a human-made word, right? Anthropomorphisms. I probably didn't say that right either, right? But it means that, that he describes himself in human terms so that we as humans can understand him. God reveals that he himself is a spirit and does not have a body like man. Even the children's catechism gets right to that. And, and yet he speaks of himself in the scriptures as having all kinds of things, right? A, a face, eyelids, uh, eyes, ears, nose, mouth, tongue, lip, neck, arm, hand, finger, heart, intestines, bosom, and feet. God speaks in terms that you and I can understand as humans as man. When, when God here says that he regrets making man and that his heart is grieved, he's using terms that we understand because he wants us to understand the, the situation. You see, when God observes that the outward sin, uh, the, the depraved hearts and the wicked intentions of man and women are evil through and through, it, it's painful in a sense. God, God is filled with heartbreak. He's filled with righteous anger Something like emotions, right? I don't know that that's the right word to explain it, but something like emotions in God. After all, God's not a computer program. He's not Surrey or Alexa or Janet or anything like that. God, God has personhood. That's, that's an aspect of God. 
But, but here in verse 6, the, these words are intended to provoke you when you read it. To draw something out of you, to draw us in, to, to show us the gravity of the situation. So that, that these words are showing us why God does what God does next. Because it's going to seem crazy to us. It's going to seem extreme to us. Look, look at it, verse 7. Look what God says. He says, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things, the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I made them. Blot out. You, you read in this and understanding it, God's going to kill everyone. Does that seem too extreme? Too radical? Too harsh? Does, does, does your opinion of God when you read this and really think about it, does it go down? Like that's, that's just not right, God. I mean, can you say that, right? It's interesting, and then how quick we modern folks are to judge God for the flood, to judge God for, for hell and, and wrath and, uh, upon guilty sinners, to judge God for anything that we see unjust or wrong. And I can't help but think it's probably because we don't understand the holiness of God. Not really. Not, not deeply enough. Um, I know I don't. Not really. Not on a daily basis. Instead of judging God, every soul on this planet should fear God's righteous judgment upon us. We, we may think that we are able to judge God and it's not real, right? We don't actually have the authority to do that. I saw some stuff in the news recently where there's some towns around the, the country that are, are, are voting to pass this ceasefire in Gaza. And the irony is you don't actually have the authority. You're not in Gaza. You're not part of Israel. You're not what are you doing voting for that? You don't actually have that authority. That, that's kind of the way we are when we try to judge God. That's not our place to be. You know, we, we're told who to fear. I mean, Jesus in Luke 12, 5, he says, I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. You and I are all hyper aware of everyone else's sin. I include myself in that. But, but do you know the depth of your own sin? Do you, do you really believe that God has a right to be angry at you for your sin? And I ask this, right? Because if you don't understand that, if you don't accept that you are sinful, really sinful, right? If you don't understand the difference between the holiness of God and the sinfulness in our human nature, right? If you don't accept that, right, the flood story is going to make no sense to you. It's just going to look like a crazy angry God for no reason. Not only that, the, the, the cross will not make sense to you either. So you understand just what it is to be sinful and what it is for God to be holy. And so God has declared here that he is going to blot out the whole human race, right? That's, that's not good. <clears throat> not good at all. So, so what hope could God possibly speak in this moment, right? After saying that he's going to wipe out everybody, what hope could he speak? Have a look for yourself. You've got it open, right? Verse 8 right there, but... Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You hear this? There, there is yet one soul among so much evil. We'll see later there's one family that is not, not grieving the Lord's heart. And really this is not about Noah here. This, this is about God. 
Let, let's not forget, right, the promise of God back in Genesis 3.15, the promise of an offspring that, that would defeat sin, that would defeat the serpent, right, and, and redeem God's covenant people. That promise must make it through this flood somehow. And, and, and take notice here, it doesn't say that, that Noah earned God's favor. It says Noah found God's favor. It's, it, it, you know, is Noah more godly than the others? Well, yeah, he is, right? I mean, he walks with God. But even that is a grace of God to him. That the Lord has sustained him in that regard. As the 17th century English pastor John Gill wrote of Noah, he says this, This man and his family were the only exception to the general apostasy. God always reserves some. In the worst of times, for himself, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. It, it was but a small one, and that now appeared, and, and this was owing to the grace of God and his choice upon that, and, and not to the merits of the creature. This grace, which Noah found and shared in, was the favor and the goodwill of God. God save, saves Noah and his family just as he saves you today, right? As a free, unconditional gift that ultimately Christ purchased for you upon his, the cross with his own blood. Uh, Colossians 1.19 says, For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. So let me just leave you with a few questions to ponder here. This is one that doesn't lean itself to incredible application, right? But, but there is some deep and meaningful application here. And the first one is this. I've already asked you, do you really know the depth of your sin? And I ask that because we're all like, yeah, I'm a sinner. And we're quick to say yes. We're, we probably don't spend a lot of time really thinking what that really looks like. Um, you, you ever in prayer just, just laid yourself bare before the Lord? Confess to every sin you can possibly think of or remember, right? The, even the very worst thoughts. If you've not done that, I, I really encourage you to do so. Not, not so that you dwell there, right? But so you come back and you just see the amazingness of grace. Um, another question to ponder, have you, um, you found favor in God? Right? Not that you understand theologically it's possible, but do you understand that that God has been favorable to you if you believe the gospel? Have you, have you experienced that grace? And, and, and maybe further the question is this, what, what does that grace mean to you? And, and finally, if, if not, right, if you've not experienced it, do you know that there is a way of escape from the flood of God's righteous judgment? See, after the flood, uh, sin still reigns in the hearts of men and women. It's not like it fixes everything. And yet, God's work of redemption doesn't fail. That's because it, it is built upon God's faithfulness to his covenant, to his own glory, and, uh, and upon his love for his covenant people, and upon the, his unmerited favor of you who, who, who know what it is to trust in Jesus. And so then I just want to end now with, a, you know, with the, the grace of the gospel as as it's described here in Genesis 2.4, and then we'll close in prayer. In Ephesians 2.4, uh, the Apostle Paul writing, right, carried on by the Holy Spirit, he says this, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, that's who you are. Heavenly Father, that's also who you are. Thank you for your grace to us, for your patience, for your unmerited favor that comes to us through Christ our Lord. Lord, we ask you to open our eyes to see your favor towards us because we don't always believe it.
Open our eyes to see that you are always, even in our deepest sorrows and, and, and biggest struggles, even in our greatest triumphs and successes, always working for our good. Lord, if we don't actively, currently find our refuge in you, please lead us to faith and repentance in Jesus Christ, or, or renew that faith and repentance, Lord, so that we would be set free from sin and misery, from guilt, from wrath, from all that we have earned with our unholiness. It's in Jesus' name that we pray this. Amen.